Indianapolis is the home of what? The Colts, okay, we'll get that. But what's the other thing? We're the Indianapolis 500, yes, we are the home. Oh, man, I can't believe you all failed that one. It's like the big thing over there on the west side, that big... You got it, Kathy got it, okay, yeah. I mean, we're like the home of the Indy 500. How have you all been to the Indy 500? Anybody been? Okay, uh, I've been to uh, time trials. I've never actually been to a race. Every year I say I'm going to go. It's like the Colts game. Every year I say I'm going to go see the Colts, and I never do. Um, but uh, I, I need to go. And, uh, but I, uh, the Indianapolis 500 is, is something I've always wanted to do, and my relatives, i got some of them that go. The guy across the street from me, uh, every year, I mean, like the place is packed. He told me last uh, last time that this was his 46th one to go to. So he's just like an addict. He's got it down pat and stuff like that. But there's an interesting fact about the Indianapolis 500 that you may not know because they don't talk about it. At least 40 drivers have been killed at the Indianapolis 500. So over its storied history of 100 plus years now, over a 40 drivers have been killed at the Indianapolis 500. But here's the thing. At the Indy 500, they really try to sweep that under the rug. One of the drivers said, you know, when somebody's killed at the track, you don't go look at where it's happened. And in fact, when somebody's killed at the track, they will close the track down, they will go out, they will repaint the area so there's nothing left of the fact that there was an accident in, in there. And, and in fact, if you go to the museum, there is not one mention of the fact that 40 people have died at the track. And over all the years, never once, at least from what I read, has a driver ever been pronounced dead at the track. They simply don't talk about it. And, and, and as, as uh, Scott Goodyear, one of the drivers, said, you just don't talk about it. You don't, you don't go over to where it happened after it happened. We just ignore it. We just sweep it under the rug. We deny it. We deny it. Now, let me tell you something about denial. First of all, denial ain't a river in Egypt, okay? Uh, so sometimes think, people think denial is a river in Egypt. Denial ain't a river in Egypt, okay? I'm going to use some bad language. Denial is when you know something is true, but you declare that it's not true. All right? You know in your heart that it's true, but you're declaring it's not true. Now, let me just share with you a fact, and you may deny this, but I hope you don't. Everybody's in denial about something. All right, uh, you might say, well, I deny that. Well, there you go. All right, everybody is in denial about something. We're all denying something in our lives. Some people are denying that maybe their marriage is falling apart. Some people just deny that. They don't want to face it. They don't want to talk about it. There are some people who are denying that their finances are falling apart. They don't want to look at it. They don't want to talk about it. They don't want to face it. Some people are, you know, they get a terminal illness and a diagnosis and they deny it. If I just ignore the fact that the doctor said I had cancer, I'm just, I'm just going to act like it's not there. They deny. You know, some people deny that they're lazy. All right? <laughs> yeah, they go from job to job to job, but it's always somebody else's fault. Right? I mean, when there's a common denominator, it's probably you. All right? If this has happened three or four times, it's not always them. It's got to be you. But a lot of people deny it. It ain't my fault, you know, that I keep getting fired and things like that. It's always somebody else's fault. You, you know, you're, a church can deny. A church can be in denial uh, uh, of things that are going on. They can be in denial that. Uh, people can be in denial about all sorts of things. Just, I don't want to face it. I don't want to talk about it. It's kind of like the Indianapolis 500. We're just going to act like it never happened. And I guarantee you that if you really look in your lives, there are probably some idols and some things in your lives that you're just denying are really there. Everybody 
is in denial about something. Why do we do that? Why do we deny the truth? Well, number one, part of it's just our ego, right? Our pride. I don't want to deny that I've got financial problems. We just don't want to do it. I don't want to, you know, I don't want to admit the fact that my marriage is struggling. We, we just deny it. I, I don't, oh yeah, my walk with the Lord, oh man, it's great. Me and Jesus are just like that. But you haven't looked at your Bible in like three weeks or you haven't prayed. Oh yeah, we're close. To, but you just deny it because of our ego, okay? And, and so a lot of times we just, we just don't want to admit because of our pride. So we deny things. Another reason we deny things is just self-preservation, we, we just, we just want to make sure that, that we, maybe you're, maybe you're addicted to gambling and, and you're going down to the casinos and things like that and you're spending a lot of money and, and your bank account's going down and you're, you guys aren't able to eat or anything like that, but you're in denial. Oh, I don't have a gambling addiction because the reason is if you accept that, if you admit it, then you got to do something about it. So a lot of people deny it so they can just continue and even though it's destroying them. So, I mean, the reason we deny things is there's just a natural tendency, and it's all in all of us, to just keep the things the way they are. I, I mean, if everything's falling apart, a lot of times people that deny that reality is they, even though they hate it, they just want things to continue the way they are, and there's a lot of consequences to that. I mean, what happens when we deny? What happens? Well, we've been looking at this series, and today we're going to wrap it up. We've been talking about epic failures in the Bible. People that just had these humongous failures. And of course, this one today is one that we all probably think about when I announced the series five weeks ago. So let's turn to Mark 14. That's in your New Testament. If you have a Bible there, if you're not, you can pull out your iPad, your iPhone, your device, your Android, your Bible. If I was in the New Testament times, I'd say your scrolls. But Mark chapter 14. And Mark is in the New Testament. It's the second book of the New Testament. So if you find Matthew, just keep turning right and you got Mark. And Mark is, was originally known as the memoirs of Peter because the gospel of Mark, it's, it's long held and, and that Simon Peter was actually Mark's source material. Mark was not one of the 12 apostles of Jesus. Okay, he went with Paul on missionary journeys and things like that. But, so, but when he wrote this gospel, it's generally agreed that Peter was probably the main apostle that told Mark what was going on. And so let me give you some background here in Mark chapter 14 to the story. Jesus has been arrested. And this has been a shocker to the disciples. Because these guys have been with Jesus for almost three years now. And they had seen people try to stone Jesus and they couldn't. And they had seen crowds try to grab Jesus, and he would somehow just be gone. They, in fact, they had even witnessed when the guards were sent to arrest Jesus, and they couldn't arrest him. You know, I mean, Jesus just kind of, they just couldn't do it. And now all of a sudden, though, Jesus has been arrested. I mean, this is a shocker. How could this happen? I mean, all those times that he eluded their grasp, now all of a sudden, Jesus is arrested, and, and, and when, he got, when he was arrested that night, all the disciples fled the scene, except Peter and John. In fact, even Thomas ran away, and Thomas, just shortly before, there was a time when Jesus said, let's go back, Lazarus is dead, and, and they were like, you know, we can't go back there because they're going to try and kill you, and, and Thomas said, you know, let us go die with him. I mean, he was like, yeah, and, and, and now all of a sudden, Jesus is arrested, and where's Thomas? Tommy's gone. 
He's not going to stick around. So, so all the disciples are fled. Peter and John are just kind of there, and they're kind of falling at a distance. And I think the reason Peter is following Jesus at a distance as he's being uh, carted away is Peter is expecting Jesus to do something miraculous. I mean, he's just waiting for the lightning bolt to come down, fry the soldiers, it's going to be cool, waiting for the fireworks. You know, Peter, he was into all that, and, uh, but he, nothing's happening. I think the reason John's following is John was just a very loyal person. I mean, when all the apostles had fled, or all the disciples had fled at the cross, John was there. He was the one that stayed. He was a very loyal person. So I think John was following because he was loyal. And and so here's Jesus arrested. Now, it's kind of weird because Jesus had told them he was going to be crucified. He told them these things. He predicted all these things. But, of course, they didn't quite believe it. How could this happen? You're the Son of God. I mean, you're God in the flesh. I mean, you're all powerful. How can this happen? And, and, And suddenly Jesus is arrested. And I think another reason maybe that Peter is following is Jesus says, you know, you're going to abandon me, Peter. And Peter's like, no, I'm not. I'm just going to prove it to you. So Peter's kind of hanging out because Peter told Jesus, hey, if everybody runs away, I'm not going to run away, Lord. So Peter's kind of hanging out, hanging back, and here's Jesus being led away, and this is a shocker. I want you to look at verse 53 of Mark chapter 14. It says, they led Jesus away. That's from the Garden of Gethsemane. That's where he was arrested. And here's where they led him to. To the high priests and all the chief priests, the elders... And the scribes. And all these people convened. Okay? Now this is huge. So you have, Jesus is led away and you've, to this place and you've got the high priest. I mean, this is the big daddy right here. I mean, the high priest is the big daddy. He is the one that once a year would go in and offer the sacrifice in the Holy of Holies. He's the only one that did that. And in this time frame in Jewish history, they didn't have a king. They were under Rome's authority. So he was the liaison between the Jews and Rome. So, I mean, this, this is the big guy. And not only them, but he, they've got all the chief priests under him that are there. And not only them, they've got the elders and they've got the scribes. In fact, this is really the, the convening of the Sanhedrin. And there were two types of Sanhedrin. And one was called the Great Sanhedrin, which were up to 71 members. So there's a lot of people here. And this is big stuff. This would be like Jesus being led, let's put it in modern context, to Washington, D.C., in the White House. There's the president. There's the FBI. There's the CIA. There's the House of Representatives. And there's the senators congressmen all there in this big room. I mean, this is power. This is the seat of power. I mean, this is super, super impressive. And so here these guys are, and they're, they've convened late at night, which is really, I mean, this is obviously a huge deal, and they have finally arrested Jesus, which is something they wanted to have happen for a long time. Finally, they got him arrested, and here they are. All the other disciples, they're gone. They fled to their house. Look at verse 54. Peter followed him at a distance, and, and I told you about why. I think he was just kind of hanging back. Right, here's where, right into the high priest's courtyard. Now again, you just got I'm just trying to paint the picture. The high priest's courtyard was not the place the average fisherman would be. Because that's what Peter was, right? I mean, that was his job. He, he was a fisherman. He, he, he was, you know, he just worked out there at the seas. He tended nets. He caught fish and all that. I mean, this was not a place a fisherman would be. 
I mean, this was intimidating. I have never been, I've been to Washington, D.C., but just to the monument. I've never actually been to the White House or the Capitol. But I can imagine walking in there, how intimidating that would be. All right? And so he walks in there. I mean, and he's in the courtyard of the high priest, and, and, and he's got, you know, the temple guards are all standing around there. The servants are all scurrying about, you know, because there's a lot of commotion here. You've suddenly got all these people coming, all, all these bigwigs coming in. You've got the interns, they're running back and forth and things like that. And this is huge. And this would have been intimidating for anybody, especially a fisherman who wasn't used to this kind of pomp and circumstance. And here he is, and, 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 and then there's, of course, the high priest, the big guy right there in the courtyard in that area. So here's Peter in the courtyard, a place he had never thought he would ever, ever be. And here he is. And look at where he's sitting. Look here in the text. He was sitting with the temple police, warming himself by the fire. He's sitting there with the cops. I mean, he, here he is. He, he sits down. You know, he's going to warm himself up by the fire. And he's trying to act kind of inconspicuous. And he's sitting right next down, you know, next to that guy. And the guy's got the badge on. I don't think they wore badges, but whatever. Just put it, play, go with me there. He's got the badge on, got the hat on. He's got the gun strapped to his side, you know, or the sword. And Peter's like, you know, well, let's see, did I pay my parking ticket last week? Uh, let's see, am I caught? You know, so he's probably, you know, making sure that, you know, are they going to run an FBI check on me? So here's Peter. He's sitting down right next to the temple police in the temple courtyard. It is intimidating. I mean, just imagine for a second, just imagine that you had a best friend that, that you, you had hung together with and, and, and just a best friend. And suddenly this friend was arrested and, and this friend's taken to Washington, D.C., and you're, you're trying to be a good friend. So you drive up to Washington, D.C., and you drive in there to, to the Capitol, and, and, and you walk into the room, and the, and the TV cameras are all flashing. People are taking pictures. The paparazzi is there, and you see your friend over there on the side seated, and you see maybe the president, and you see the FBI people and the CIA people and the senators, congressmen, all those people, and, and you walk in, and there's like this little section for visitors, and you just kind of slink over there, and you sit down, and you're like, I hope nobody nobody finds out. Right? I hope nobody knows. I hope nobody does Google or anything and finds out that I'm a friend. Okay? I hope there's no pictures out there of me hanging out with my friend, things like that, because you're just trying to remain inconspicuous. And that's exactly what Peter's doing. So here he is in the courtyard. He's sitting by the cops. He, he's, he's trying to blend in, trying to act like maybe nothing's cool. And, and I can imagine from his vantage point, uh, that, that he is seeing, as he's sitting there warming himself by the fire, that he is seeing the, the witnesses that are being brought in. So he's probably sitting there and seeing these people being brought in and going up to that room. And, and, and according to Luke's account uh, later, because we know Jesus looked at Peter, that, that he could probably see into the room. So Peter's probably looking up there, and from the account it looks like he's in the courtyard below and the, the room's up there. So he can probably look up there and see all the big wigs up there. He can see the commotion. He's probably watching people walk by, and then a few minutes later he sees them standing up there, and they're testifying. And so here, here is Peter. And, and look at verse 66. Skip down to verse 66. And again, the, the intervening verses talk about the trial that's going on, but we want to focus on Peter here. Look at verse 66. While Peter was in the courtyard below. So again, he probably being able to look up and see those things. He can see Jesus being grilled. He can see the reaction of the group when the witnesses see. He can see the lawyers pointing their fingers at Jesus and things like that. He can see that Jesus isn't responding. I'm sure Peter's like, say something. 
You know, say something. And they're out there pointing at Jesus, and Jesus is just not saying anything. And, you know, he's like, do something, you know. And I can imagine that Peter's sitting there, he's confused. What is this about? How could he get arrested? Why did he allow this to happen? Don't these people know all the good that Jesus done? All the people he's healed and, and his teachings. And don't they know that he's the son of God? How can this happen? Where are the rest of the disciples? Why did they all take off and run away? And, you know, and, and, and in the midst of all that's this, this fear. What's going to happen to me? I mean, what if they do crucify him? What are they going to do to me? And, and he, he's afraid. But I, I can imagine Peter's, all those things are running inside of him. But, you know, he is the rock. You know, Jesus said that. The rock. So I'm sure he's like trying to act stoic on the outside, but inside he's probably like, I don't know what's going to happen. And look at verse 66. While Peter was in the courtyard below, one of the high priest's servants came. And he sees her walking. In verse 67. And when she saw Peter warming himself, she looked at him. Now that word in the original language means she literally gazed at him, like walking along like, hmm, let me get my phone out. Uh, yeah, <laughs> they didn't have Google back then, but she would have Googled him, right? Facebooked him or whatever, you know. But she's looking at him and she's like, hmm, you... Aren't you? You were also with that Nazarene, which is kind of a slam. You were with that Nazarene, you know, the armpit of Judea. I mean, come on. You, you were with that guy, weren't you? So, I mean, here's Peter. Hey, Peter. Sitting there inside all tore up. Here's this intern, servant girl, like an intern in the United States, president walking by. And she's, she looks at him. She's like, you were with him. Now, now, you have to understand that Jesus was in the temple a few times. In fact, he had just recently been in the temple, okay, leading up to this. So in her being an intern or a servant girl of the high priest, she would have been in the temple a lot. And, and, and of course, this wasn't Jesus' first time in the temple. He had been on there at least two other occasions. So she had probably been in the temple a lot because that's where she served the high priest at. And so she, again, of all people, would probably have looked at the disciples and seen the disciples when they were there. So, so, so when she sees him... It's not, it's not like somebody who maybe had never seen him before, and she's looking at him, and she's saying, I think you're him. Aren't, aren't you one of the guys that went with Jesus and things like that? And, and, and again, she's probably like, why are you here, man? I mean, this is not good. I mean, he's on trial. You probably ought not to be here. That's probably what you know, she's kind of saying there are thinking there in her mind, and I mean, who would put themselves in this kind of vulnerable position? And, and, and I'm sure she heard Caiaphas, who was a high priest, talk badly about Jesus and the disciples a lot. And so she's probably like, dude, I don't know if she said that, but she's probably like, dude, aren't, aren't, you, aren't you with him? I mean, really, seriously? Are you really wanting to be here and hang out? I mean, what's the deal here like that? And, and, and things like that. Weren't you with him? And so Peter obviously is surprised by this. I mean, he's like, oh, man, <sighs> cover's blown. I mean, I was trying to follow at a distance and kind of hang back here and things like that. I was trying to be inconspicuous. I was trying to blend in here. Oh, man, look at what he does. Because, again, this is why we deny things. He denied it. Self-preservation. 
I don't know. I don't even understand. What are you talking about? All right, I mean, he, he's just kind of bowing up. You know what? Hey, look, look, look. I honestly don't bl- blame Peter. I'm not so sure most of us wouldn't have done it, to be honest with you. Because, look, if he says, yep, I'm with him, the guy up there they're pointing the finger at, and the guy they're beating up there, I'm with him, yeah, what you going to do about it? Oh, we're going to arrest you. I mean, you know, I mean, so let's just face it. I mean, he was scared of getting arrested, and he certainly didn't want the attention drawn to him. So, so he, 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 he denies it, and look at where he goes. He says, then he went out to the entryway, and the entryway is like this uh, area that they walked through going into the courtyard. It was covered a lot of times by vines and things like that, and things like that. So he, he goes out to the courtyard because that, that led to the street. So he goes right out to the entryway. I got a feeling he, he's like, hey, I'm not him. And, and he gets up, and he goes as far away as he can. Hope, he can still see Jesus up there, but he is going away and, and trying to get away from her. Now, let me share with you something about denial. And this is just the big point this morning, and that is this. Denial defeats. Whenever you and I deny, we are in the road of defeat. Peter denies Jesus, and he is a defeated man already. Look at him. He goes from the warmth of the fire now to an entryway where there's no fire. Now he's going to be cold. He's going from a place where he was hanging out and probably hearing the conversations to where now he's isolated. You see, when we deny things, when we deny things that are going on in our lives, it leads to, re- to defeat. See, here's what Jesus said in Luke chapter 5, verse 13. Unless you repent, you're going to perish. I mean, if you want to keep denying the fact that you're far from God, if you want to keep denying the fact that you're a sinner, if you want to keep denying that, I'm going to tell you, you're going to perish. You're going to be defeated. Your eternity is going to be separation from God forever. Because you deny the fact that you need a Savior. Denying a problem doesn't solve the problem. The problem's still there, right? The problem's still there. Peter's not solving anything. He's actually being defeated. Every time he denies, he is going down the path of defeat. He's left the warmth of the fire. He's left hearing the conversation. He is in the shadows. He's isolated, he's growing colder, and while he's alone, the rooster crows. The rooster crows. Now, you know, I I think right there, Jesus said that would happen. Peter would deny him three times, rooster crow twice, we we knew that. But I really think right when that happens, God's like, wake up, Peter. He hears that rooster, and I think God in his mercy is saying, Peter, this is your moment, brother. One denial already. I've had the rooster crow once. It's your chance, Peter. This is your chance. Turn around. Repent. Take a stand. Take a stand. Should have been a wake-up call, but it wasn't. You know, a lot of times, again, when we're in denial, I would argue that a lot of times God's doing little things, saying, I'm here. I'm at work. Are you going to listen? I'm giving you a chance. But a lot of times we just kind of keep denying, right? Keep the blinders on. Don't want to think about it. Don't want to address it. Don't want to talk about it. Don't want to repent. Because denial 
is driven by our ego. It's driven by our desire to preserve ourselves. It's driven by our pleasure. Denial is driven by those things. So even in the shadows, though, even while Peter's over there in the shadows, he can't find peace. Look at verse 69. When the servant saw him again, I mean, now look, this, this girl is not going to let him get away with it because she's an intern, all right? She's trying to work her way up the ladder here at the White House, okay, in the courtyard, all right? She's not going to let him get away with it. She knows she's on to a story here, all right? So when she saw him again, she began to tell those standing nearby, this man is one of them, verse 70, but he denied it. Now let me just stop right there. Matthew in his account tells us that Peter denied it with an oath. Now when you swore an oath, you were saying, I deny this by something greater than me. So Peter's like, I'm taking an oath, folks. All right, I, 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 I swear by God and God's throne. That, that's what they do. That I am not him. I am not with this guy. Now, you know why? This is a dangerous thing. Peter, in his denial, is attempting to make God a party to his lie. He's like, I swear by God, I'm not with this guy. I mean, you talk about, now we're getting really. Now we're not only isolated from the fire and isolated by the people and in the shadows, now we're really destroying our relationship with the Father because you're making God party to a lie. You're trying to bring God into this thing. Now, it seems, if you read the other gospel accounts, that the people were kind of like, mm, well, I mean, you know, we really wouldn't expect one of Jesus' disciples to do this. I mean, they wouldn't swear by God if it wasn't true, all right? We think these guys are kind of guys of integrity. And in fact, if you look at the other gospels, it appears that about an hour goes by before they confront him again if you look at the other gospel stories. But let me just tell you this. Denial defeats you. Peter is defeated. He is defeated. He has created this barrier between him and God and, and, and things like that. Let, let me just say, in our lives, denial defeats your spiritual growth. You can't grow spiritually if you're going to live in denial. If, you're, if you and I are, are going to live in denial, we can't grow spiritually. You know why? Because we're not willing to confess our sins. We're not willing to repent of our sins. You can't grow spiritually and be in denial. It just doesn't work. And again, a lot of people today, a lot of people in the church say, I'm a believer, but they're in denial about some sin in their life or some issue in their life. And let me tell you, it's hard. It's difficult. You've got to let go of your ego. You've got to let go of your pride. You've got to say, I made a mistake. I blew it. I get it. But a lot of people are stunted in their spiritual growth because they constantly live in denial. So about an hour goes by. And, and, and again, it's very possible that during that hour, Peter's watching from the shadows, and again, he's seeing uh, a few more witnesses going in, and then he starts seeing them beating Jesus up there and blindfolding him and spitting on him. And there in that dark darkness on the edge of the courtyard is Peter's right there between there and the street watching this it's not good it's not good no fire no company now there's a barrier between him and God and due to his denial Peter is vulnerable I mean he's vulnerable 
And so the servant girl, she's got, you know, the bystanders, they probably during this hour, they've been over there talking like, man, and the servant girl's like, I, I don't care what the guy said. I don't care that he swore an oath. I know that this guy is with him. And I'm sure a few other bystanders are like, you know, I, I, you know, I'm pretty sure I did see him there. And so they start kind of marshalling their forces. And so you go back there. It says, after a little while, those standing there beside him, again, about an hour had passed, said to Peter again. So they come back like, look. You are certainly one of them, since you talk funny. You're a Galilean. I'm telling you, Galileans talked funny. I lived in the South for 15 years. I might have some of my former friends from my church watching right now. I love my brothers and sisters in the South, but in the South, talk a little differently than in the North, All right, especially in the rural South where I was. Uh, One-syllable words are two. So my name's Jim, and then Indiana, in Alabama, it was GM, okay? We just talk differently, okay? And, and, and in fact, I joke, uh, which is true. When I first came to that church, they gave me a book called How to Speak Redneck. Literally gave me the book, How to Speak Redneck, and, and, and things like that. So, so there, I mean, I, when, occasionally, it's been a lot, while, but sometimes I've had to call back to the church there, and uh, Tina, who was my secretary almost the entire 15 years there, you know, she picks up the phone, I know it's Tina. You know, she's got that accent. Love her to death, but she's got that accent. And, and let, you know, now, here's the deal. Uh, I deal with some people around the country um, and, uh, you know, I can tell when I'm getting a call from a New Yorker. Yep. You from New York? Yeah, I'm from New York. I mean, you can tell. And the Galileans, they had a guttural way of talking. So, you, you know, a Galilean probably sounded like a New Yorker to us. They're like, Peter, you sound like a New Yorker. I'm probably not good at doing that, uh, accenting, okay? And Peter said, no, nah, I'm from the South. I don't know, but whatever. They could tell when he talked, they're like, wait a minute, wait a minute, dude, you're from up there, all right? And we know that's where Jesus is from, he's a Nazarene, okay? I mean, he's got that funny accent too, and, and you got that funny accent too, and, and, and you are him, all right? We don't have Twitter or Facebook or anything like that, but we're pretty sure, because you talk funny, and we're pretty sure you've been in the temple with him, because some of us have seen it. You are him, and he is nailed. Verse 71. Peter's not ready to go down without a fight. Denial defeats. Then he started to curse and swear with an oath. Now, just so you know, he's not using profanity. Okay? When the Bible says that curse and swear, again, he's, he's starting to call down curses on himself. He is saying, may God kill me if I am one of his. May God strike me dead. I mean, Peter's bowing up. I mean, he's Peter. Peter's bowing up. I don't know this man you're talking about. May God kill me if I know this man. I mean, he's, he's going out with a fight. I mean, and he's calling down those oaths, and look at what happens. And immediately, a rooster crowed a second time. And Peter remembered when Jesus had spoken the word to him, before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. Ah! When he hears it, he realizes 
that he did exactly what he said he wouldn't do. I'm telling you, denial defeats. It defeats you. It defeats you. Luke tells us in Luke chapter 22 that when that happened, then the Lord turned and looked at him. Again, I think Peter could see up into the room. He could see Jesus. And can you just imagine at that moment, Jesus turns his head and looks at him. And so Peter remembered the word of the Lord he had said to him, before the rooster crows today, you will deny me three times. Now, right there tells you that God was in control. Jesus was still very much in control. He was in control the whole time. To the moment he died, it is finished. I mean, it was, he was in control. So he, he was letting Peter know, Peter, I heard it. I know what you did. I'm still in control here, though. But I can imagine when Peter saw that look, his macho man image was destroyed. I mean, the leader of the apostles, nothing. Mincemeat. He had just denied the Son of God. And you know, here's the deal. When we deny, what we're doing is lying to ourselves. I mean, he's, he was lying to himself, he was lying to others, and he was lying to God. Of course, God knew. But that's what happens when we get in denial. We lie, and it leads to defeat. We deny the truth because we want to save our own skin. We don't want to admit that we have a problem. All right, let's just get over it. We all have problems. All right, we're all just humans. We're all sinners. We're all messed up. All right, welcome to the club. If you're perfect, we really love you, but you need to find another church. Because I'm just going to tell you, Warren is a bunch of messed up people. I mean, I mean, we just are. We're just a bunch of messed up people here. Okay? We're all messed up. Don't deny it. And Peter, you know, but we deny it because we want to look good. We, we, we want to look like we're in control. We don't want to be honest with ourselves. We don't want to be honest with others. We don't want to be honest with God. Like, he really doesn't know? Come on, give me a break. All right? We want to get ahead at work or whatever, so we'll lie and we'll deny and things like that. And I'm sure that when this happened, when, when Peter saw that look from Jesus, his mind flashed to what Jesus said in Matthew he said this in Matthew 10, 33, But whoever denies me before men, I will deny him before my Father. And I can imagine at that moment when Peter saw Jesus look, he realized he had denied Jesus before men, and Peter is destroyed. <clears throat> and if you look at the text, it says he went and he wept. Other passages tell us that he wept bitterly. I mean, he was already at the edge of the courthouse, and when he sees a look from Jesus, and I got the feeling maybe that those words came back, whoever denies me for men, I'll deny for my father. And Peter just runs into the night, further isolation, further coldness, further darkness. Now he feels like he's totally cut himself off from God which isn't true, but that's how he felt. And he runs into the night, and he just weeps bitterly.
Now, denial defeats. Here's the question. How do you defeat denial? Denial defeats. So how do we defeat denial? Well, let me tell you. It's simple. Repent. Simple. Repent. Now, I say it's simple, but it's difficult because we don't like to repent. Because we're prideful people. We have an ego. But if you want to defeat denial, you have to repent. Again, Mark 7, 14, 72 says that when Peter thought about it, he went out and he wept. He wept bitterly. Let me tell you a couple things that Peter did that was the right things. He repented quickly. He wept bitterly. Undoubtedly, he was repenting. God, I, I, I failed. I messed up. I shouldn't have done it. I denied my Savior. I messed up. I, I, I just, I, I'm unworthy and things like that. He repented bitterly. So another thing you need to do is repent quickly and repent with godly sorrow. He repented with bitterness. He, he was truly, truly a broken man in that moment. I mean, just think about this. Peter had been Jesus' inner circle. Jesus had invited Peter on special occasions like the transfiguration. He had been there when Jesus raised Jairus' daughter. He had had a lot of private conversations with James and John. Peter, James, and John were Jesus' inner, inner circle. He was one of Jesus' right-hand men. I mean, earlier that day even, Jesus had given Peter the task, and Peter and John the task of securing the place for their celebration for the Passover. I mean, he was part of the inner, inner circle, and when he realized what he did, he was just like, oh my goodness, I just betrayed the Son of God. And he repented bitterly. You know, an old preacher named Vance Havner said this, God uses broken things. In fact, I'm going to tell you that the only people that God really can use is when we're broken. And that's tough. I mean, it is tough when you go through the ringer. Some of you all know what it's like, hopefully. It's not fun when God puts you through the ringer. It's not fun when you have to come face to face with your sin. It's not fun when you have to say, God, I, I have an addiction. I repent. I, I've got a problem. I need help. God, I, 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 you know, I've got a gambling problem or a porn addiction. Or I, I've got this. I, I've, I, I need help. That's not easy for us to do. Maybe you're, you're God, I've been running from you. Again, that's not easy, but if you'll get broken, that's when God can use you. Vance Havner said, God uses broken things, broken soil to produce a crop, broken clouds to give rain, broken grain to give bread, broken bread to give strength. It is the broken alabaster box that brought forth the perfume. God uses broken things. Peter is broken, weeping bitterly. How do you defeat denial? You repent. You repent. You repent. Now, honestly, if you read the rest of the Gospels, you see Peter's brokenness. He's in the background, if you notice this. He's not the upfront Peter that he was before, after the crucifixion. Now, at one point, he's like, let's just go fishing. After, even after the resurrection, he's still, he's not leading like he used to be. He's in the background. He's not that same inquisitive, outgoing personality that he was prior to that night. I mean, he ran to the tomb the morning of the resurrection, and he ran into the tomb and saw the grave clothes laying there, and then he just goes home. He's pretty, pretty subdued, even after the resurrection. He's in the background 
the whole time. He feels, I think Peter felt like he was useless. But let me tell you the good news about this. If you will repent of your denial and be broken, God will still use you. Because after his resurrection, you probably know the story. Peter's out fishing, and he realizes it's Jesus. And he goes back. Now, he's still quiet around the campfire. The rest of the disciples join him. He's not the same bombastic Peter he was. And Peter, Jesus turns to him and says, Peter, do you love me? Yeah, I love you. Feed my sheep. Peter, do you really love me? Yes, I love you. Feed my sheep. Peter, do you love me? Yes, I love you. Feed my sheep. And Peter feeds the sheep. He goes on to unlock the gospel to the Samaritans, unlock the gospel to the Gentiles. He goes on to stand up for the Gentiles at the Jerusalem Council with the Apostle Paul. He goes on to write First and Second Peter in our New Testaments. God still uses him, but he had to be broken first. So maybe you're going through an epic failure of denial right now. God can still use you, but you've got to get honest with yourself. Maybe there's a struggle in your life. Maybe you're watching my Facebook this morning, and there's a struggle in your life. First of all, let's just start at ground zero. The worst denial is deny that you're a sinner who needs a Savior. That's the worst one. If you're like, I got this, I can make it on my own, you're in total denial. And you need to repent. You need to say, God, I'm a sinner. I am a messed up person. I need a deliverer. I need a Savior. And you know what? The only one that I know that rose from the dead was Jesus Christ. So you know what? I'm going to put my faith and trust in him because he said he's the one. And he's the only one that's done it. So I'll put my faith and trust in him. If you've never done that, you need to do that. Because as long as you say, I got this, I'm a pretty good guy, you're in denial. Just telling you. And maybe you're a Christ follower. You're like, no, Jim, I, I know I'm a follower of Jesus. I remember giving my heart to Christ. I know that, but I've got this and this and this, and I've been kind of denying that that sin's in my life. Then you need to stop being in denial and repent. It's okay. You're not going to tell God something he doesn't know. He's waiting for you to admit it. For you to admit it. For me to admit it. God, I've got this addiction, and it's wrong. And for you to be broken over that. He's waiting for you to be broken. He's waiting for you. Where repentance means I'm going to turn from it. And it also, though, confessing means I'm going to admit what it is. It's a sin against you. It's not against, it's against you. I'm telling you, as long as you live in denial, you'll be defeated. But if you'll repent, you can defeat denial. That's how you defeat denial. Repent. So let me ask you to bow your heads and close your eyes for a moment. If you're watching on Facebook or here today, first of all, let's start at ground zero. Do you know Jesus as your Savior? Better yet, does God know you? Has there been a point in your life when you have admitted you're a sinner, admitted you need a Savior, Till you do that, you're in denial, and you'll be defeated. And ultimately, unfortunately, you will send yourself to hell. 
So if you're watching today or here in this room, and you're like, you know, Jim, I don't know that I've ever really gotten honest with God. Right now, just tell God, admit to God, God, I'm a sinner. I mean, admit in your heart some sins. He'll bring them to your mind. God, I, I know I've lied before. I know I've cheated on tests or whatever. Maybe even on your spouse. God, I, I, I know I've got this. I know these are wrong. I admit it. I am a sinner. God, I am going to put all my faith in Jesus Christ and Him alone. He's the only one that died on the cross and rose again. I don't understand it all. I don't get it all, but I believe it. And I'm just going to trust Him and Him alone. I'm not going to trust in myself. I'm not going to trust in my works. I'm not going to trust that my grandpappy was a pastor. I'm not going to trust any of those things. I'm just going to trust in Jesus. So if you have never gotten honest with God, do that now. Here this morning. And I'm going to challenge you. If you're like, yes, I am going to do that. I'm doing that right now. Then here's my challenge. If you're on Facebook, send us a message and tell us you've done that. If you're in this room, meet with me after church and say, you know what, Jim? Today I got right with God. I gave my heart and life. Now, maybe you have responded to God and you've called out in repentance and salvation. He has saved you and you know that beyond a shadow of a doubt. But maybe there's an area in your life where there's a sin in your life that you've been denying is there. Right now, I'm going to ask Holy Spirit that you bring it to our minds. And I'm going to ask right now in the quietness of our hearts that we'll repent in brokenness. And to do that means we're not going to go back home and get back into it. That if there's things at the house that are causing us to go in that sin, we're going to throw it away. We're going to destroy it. If there's places we go that leads us in that, we're not going there anymore. We're done. So maybe right now you just need to do business with God. Denial defeats. Don't be defeated. Repent. God will still use you. Father, I thank you for the salvation we have through Jesus. And I thank you for your word because it doesn't gloss over failures. I thank you, Lord, that you kept this story in your word of Peter's failure because we're like Peter. And Father, I pray today that maybe watching via Facebook or here in this room, that if there's somebody that just said, Lord, today I gave my life to you, I, I just pray that happened. I pray that some chains have been broken this morning and that we'll come back different people. Father, I thank you that you never, ever let go, that you're there for us, that just like you restored Peter, you will restore us. You will use us. But first, we have to stop living in denial and be broken. And it's in your name we pray. Amen.